0: Welcome to this edition of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP, Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and today I will be talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County with our lovely regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, and special guest today, political columnist with Vermont Digger, John Walters. Hello Emily. Good morning Olga. And hey John welcome back to the show.
1: Well thank you.
0: I'm so glad to have you here. How's it at Vermont Digger your new gigs? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I'm a couple weeks in and so far so good. Well I would... uh, we have a very we have a very active uh, statehouse team all of whom are way younger than I am. Oh. So I'm Part of the den mother of the group. <laughs> That's
0: very sweet. <laughs> that is
1: or the elder sweet. statesman. <clears throat> or the very elder statesman.
2: Well, I and there have been charming updates coming out every day. Quite appreciate it. Yeah, I,
1: I write a column once a week for, for Digger. It comes out early in the week. And then uh, I also contribute to Final Reading, which is a daily email newsletter. Uh, free sign-up on the website. Um and uh, we have lots of interesting We have lots of interesting stuff every day. It's a it's a great catchall for whatever's going on that day in uh, in the statehouse. Uh, plus, we always have a, a few little interesting tidbits and sidelights. Um, last night's edition had uh, a couple of paragraphs about uh, State Representative Mari Cordes, who spent uh, about a week during the Christmas break uh, in a, a refugee camp yeah. on the Mexican border. Uh, she's a registered nurse, and she was she has done this before, going to uh, uh, disaster zones and refugee camps uh, to volunteer medical services, and uh, and uh, she said it was quite the experience.
0: Well, I have to contest a couple, uh, not contest, but put my. Um support behind the final reading because if you haven't signed up for it listeners you may want to consider it because it is full of really good information and with things changing so fast at the legislature as they can some days and some weeks uh it's a great way to just kind of keep your your finger on the pulse and i have to say john as someone who learned the journalism trade not through j school but through mentorship i think those uh little cub reporters are very lucky to have a den mother, such as <laughs> yourself.
1: <laughs> I'll tell them you said so. You'll be like, we are not
0: cub <laughs> reporters. <laughs> 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 so John, let's talk about uh, your recent columns uh, that are up on Vermont Digger right now. Uh, there's been some breaking of tradition at the State House these recent weeks, Uh, namely, traditionally, folks are not supposed to, in air quotes, um, announce that they're running for office until after the legislative session has ended in the spring. However, we had a whole load of announcements um, for governor, lieutenant governor, and even some Senate seats and some, yes, some Senate seats. So what do you make of that, John?
1: Uh, well, it is it is unusual, and we are suddenly in a you uh, know situation in the State House where a lot of people are either running for another office or thinking about running for another office. Uh, and that sort of has the dominoes falling and uh, tongues wagging, and it kind of overshadowed the first week of the legislature when we are usually uh, concerned with um, getting things going and talking about issues and stuff. Uh, but, uh, it started out actually with, uh, with our cub reporters, uh, uncovering the fact that, uh, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman was going to run for governor, uh, which he ultimately announced, uh, several days later.
2: It uh, was really, it was first of the, um, breaking news. And then there was an announcement about an announcement and then another <laughs> announcement about an announcement about an announcement. It was fairly fun.
1: And, and then, uh, Senate president pro tem, Tim Ash jumped in the following day and said he was going to run for Lieutenant governor. Uh, and, uh, and then a few days later, state Senator Debbie Ingram followed suit and there had been others too. Brenda Siegel from, uh, from down your way is mm-hmm. running and, um, uh that the Ash and Ingram are leaving two open seats in the Chittenden County delegation. And that has sparked something of a land rush among potential candidates for the Democratic nominations, which do not usually come open. Uh, so and, and then in turn, at least one state representative is running for Senate. So his seat will be open. Uh, so it's suddenly political season as well as legislative season uh, in Montpelier.
0: Should that be a concern for voters who are kind of hoping things will get done in, in Montpelier this ses- session?
2: It doesn't feel to me, Olga, as though things aren't getting done. What it does feel like is in a building um, which is sort of built um, to hold a certain level of stagnation. Um, and we can call it tradition or we can call it stagnation, and I think it's both. Um, but surrounded by the velvet and the, you know, portraits of the elder statesmen, and I mean men when I say that
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, seniority and slow deliberation, the rush of fresh air um, that this movement of positions has created feels very leavening,
1: enlightening. OK. Yeah. And this, this is something I'm going to touch on in a way next week in my column. I'm already working on it.
2: We have breaking this, news about the breaking news.
1: Well, <laughs> this is the, the fact that these openings are we are we are getting into a scenario where if everything happened right this time next year, we would we could have a female governor, a female lieutenant governor, a female speaker and a female uh, Senate president pro tem. Uh, Maybe even your own Becca Ballard um, is the uh, current Senate majority leader. Uh, so there could be four women. There could also be, if there are rumors about various elder uh, senators retiring, maybe, mm-hmm. um, this would be a good year to, for a Democratic senator to retire if they're thinking about it, because it's probably going to be a great year for Vermont Democrats uh, with Trump on the ballot. And, um, if we had like multiple elder senators leaving, uh, we might well have a rush of new blood in the Senate, and a lot of those will probably be women, uh, thanks to, um, you know, Emerge Vermont, which trains uh, women candidates. I think you're a graduate of I am. And um, so the Senate could be very different next year and, and could uh, achieve kind of a level of gender balance. That the house has already achieved.
0: Wow! So
1: there's a lot. There's a lot that could happen, and some glass ceilings that could be shattered.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, because just as a reminder to folks who may not know this, we have had in Vermont one female governor, but I don't think we've ever had uh, the full leadership team all be female, have we?
2: No, I don't think we've ever had a Senate pro tem who is no. female.
1: We we have never had a female Senate President pro tem unless there was someone in the 19th century who was dressing as a man.
2: No, because oh, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, that, that did
1: happen. It did. I know.
2: I know that um, when Senator Balance as Majority Leader, um, presided over the Senate chamber last year, um, because the majority leader stands in for the pro-tem, who stands in for the lieutenant governor sometimes. That was the first time a woman had been... held the
1: sacred gap. Had
2: held the sacred gap. <laughs> wow. Now it's,
1: got, now it's got cooties on the handle.
0: <laughs> so, um, this is exciting. I'm so glad you pointed all that out to us, John. Um, so, Emily... I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot as yes, a woman in the, I know that's, that's what I love about you. you you're that the spot doesn't scare you. Um, my favorite, <laughs> you know, as a woman serving in the, in the legislature, um, do you feel, um, for lack of a better term that the state house is ready for this type of change or are there other things that still need to happen? Um, for those glass ceilings to not only be broken, but not turn into glass cliffs?
2: Ooh, Uh nice one. Um, Thank you. So, I mean, I think it's certainly possible, and I don't think it would necessarily be a glass cliff. um, That sort of of end-of-the-day roundup that John was talking about earlier, One of the first days of the session, there was a little piece about the chairs in my um, committee room. I mean, the actual physical chairs, not the person serving as chair and how we got new chairs and my feet were finally touching the ground. And that was very exciting for me. Um, And so in some ways, the building is not, you know, ready for women, even physically Hmm. um, or smaller people. And then at the same end, you know, there's still a lot of just sort of casual sexism that happens. Um, You know, we tend to, in my committee, we've been having a very long debate about storage units um, and the regulations around storage units. And we're always defaulting to male pronouns when we talk about storage unit owners. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And we had the associated contractors in yesterday, and they were talking about the workforce shortage and, you know, all kinds of. There's all kinds of casual sexism that happens. That certainly, um, especially as a younger woman, I very regularly, re- regularly don't see myself in conversations or in data that's presented. But I don't. I think certainly um, most committee leadership in this building and um, the power in committee leadership, I think, has been held by women for quite a long time. And so the really work that gets done has been. Gut has been done by women. And so I think people are accustomed to that. I'm sure that there will be lots of, you know, casual sexism in the race and lots of microaggressions and all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, we're certainly seeing that playing itself out on the national scale right now.
1: We, we could also uh, talk about bathroom equity for a moment because, oh. uh, you know, women women do need more time and space than men do. And uh, the men have a substantial edge on total bathroom space because of the marble palace, which is a thing in the basement. That's it's the, it's a glass floor. Uh, it is, <laughs> I, I imagine it used to be the only bathroom back in the 19th century when everybody was male in this building. Uh, it is a grand uh, opulent. Uh, they call it the marble palace. It's a big men's bathroom, wow. but it's got the old fixtures and marble surfaces and all this stuff. And uh, some of the male legislators prefer to use that bathroom than the ones in the main traffic areas. Uh, And it just sits there, it exists. And um, it's kind of a thumb in the eye toward gender equity. Um, And there's actually talk about how to use the state house space better. And probably the marble palace will not be touched because it is off in the basement and there is no easy way to provide uh, accessibility mm-hmm. for, for people with disabilities. So they're probably not going to touch it, but, but it is this weird little appendix of, of male privilege, uh, which otherwise has at least been tempered in the rest of the
2: building. And I have never been in the Marble Palace. We did joke about recording in there today. It's just, you know, it's <laughs> early enough that probably no one would interrupt us. We were looking for a quiet space in the building. But John pointed out that the acoustics in a marble palace would be terrible, yeah, <laughs> so we decided yeah, that, not to
0: that. was um, going through my head. <laughs> we did actually,
2: just last year, um, finally got a lactation space in the building. There was never one before, and half of the infirmary has been converted to a lactation space, which is sort of a closet in the basement, essentially.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's not well marked. So, unless you know it's there, unless you ask for a lactation space, you're probably not going to come across it.
2: It has not been added to the map of the building.
1: Huh. We don't okay. speak of such things.
2: No. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's all possible. I don't think it'll be a glass cliff, but certainly still more difficult for women to get by in the building than men. Yeah. Thank you. But yes. if we
1: do get women on the, on the next pedestal, say a female lieutenant governor, for instance, um... Then, uh, then that sets them on sort of the, the inside track for a potential congressional nomination, which is you know the important thing. Holding one of those lesser statewide offices is the best way to advance yourself to the next level. Mm-hmm. And sometime, at least one of our you know, very senior congressional delegation is going to retire and there'll be an opening. And, and Vermont is the only state that has never sent a woman to Washington to Congress. And uh, there, there's a lot of feeling, especially in Democratic Party circles, that that is way, way overdue and downright embarrassing, really.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it is a little embarrassing. Yes. So, John, let's turn to the second column that you uh, have have written. I think this one came out this week, um, again, talking about how um, we still have a little ways to go. And this this column actually focused on Pro Tem Tim Ash, um, and and dynamics uh, between him and some of his colleagues, his female colleagues.
1: Yeah, uh, it was it was a column about basically the relationship between uh, Tim Ash and House Speaker Betsy Johnson, which has not always been smooth, uh, and it did contribute to the uh, end of session drama. Uh, and failure on some key pieces of legislation uh, in 2019, and they have been making very uh, promising noises about a much better relationship this year. Um, And one of the things that I wrote in my column, uh, and I got in a little trouble for this, which I don't mind, uh, (laughs) is that uh, ASH has a reputation that's pretty well known and widespread. I had heard about it for a long time and had never managed to get enough Get enough uh, information to report it. But Tim Ash, uh has trouble dealing with women in positions of power, and that particularly resonates when you have women in leadership in the House. And when he has to negotiate with the House, uh, he uh, he often commits micro and moderate, and maybe even macro aggressions uh, in the course of dealing with. Speaker Johnson, or uh, Majority Leader Jill Kowinski, uh, and the key committee chairs, many of whom are women. Uh, And uh, that has been pretty much an open secret around the legislature. And now that Tim Ash is running for lieutenant governor and presumably has an eye on higher office, um, I, I thought it was past time to bring this out in the open. Um, I think it's something that that people have to be concerned about. He did not like it at all. He complained to my bosses, uh, which I didn't appreciate. But um, that's you know that's his business. But what he really needs to do is take it seriously and listen to women and and you know improve things. Because if he wants to have a political career in Vermont, he's going to need to attract the support of, of female Democrats.
0: And, and I think this is a really good, just to step back to a $64,000 view of this situation, uh, Emily and John is, I think this is a good reminder of, um, how we all, all the work we all have to do, um, around our own, um, internal biases. And we, we yeah. sometimes have to stop and think about how we are, we're showing up in the world, um, so I just want to, it's its easy to focus just on Tim Ash uh, and the work he has to do, but we, I just want to put out a reminder that we all have work to do on, on these And issues.
2: it's actually, uh, I agree with you, Olga, and it's interesting in this building um, where things are always moving at a very fast pace, often un- unnecessarily, but um, I think we're all a little sort of high from the speed and drama sometimes. And there's a very high tension level and a very high and that sort of bounces off of other people. And I don't mean to get too woo-woo about it, but the level of sort of, you know, power grabbing and um, privacy and secrecy and all of that sort of, we bounce off of each other's energy around that and everything becomes so heightened that it's very, very difficult to be even close to your best self. Um, So what? Some of us, how some of us might behave out in the regular world when we're able to really like check in with our intentions. Um, I think it's often quite different from how we show up in this building, given sort of the constant heightening of emotions here.
1: I'm going to mention something that's tangential but related, and that is I, I saw uh, I saw a quote from uh, Susannah Davis, mm-hmm. who's the state's new, I don't know her title, but it's racial equity. Um, She's the
2: director of British?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's
1: know. something like that, but she is new. Uh, it's a new position. And she pointed out that, you know, if Vermont needs to become a more welcoming place and a more diverse place in order to foster economic growth, that this needs to be a place where anyone can come and find their niche and, you know, find a community that welcomes them. And uh, way too often for people of color, they, they might, I, I've heard from people who move to Vermont, and then they leave again, mm-hmm. because they just feel unwelcome. And they feel like, you know, not only a minority, but like a, a one of a kind, practically. And, you know, she pointed out that this is not just a matter of sort of like doing the right thing. It's also a matter of, making this state prosper it's kind of like you know what they used to say about uh gender equity that we need to have both wings in order to fly uh we need to have uh you know a, a more diverse state uh, if we're going to continue to if we're going to thrive uh into the 21st century
2: so if you know um the world has more than 50 percent women and which I think is just sort of endlessly fascinating (laughs) that there are more women than men in the world. Um, And the country is about to become more than 50% Mm non-white, then how is Vermont ever going to develop um, and to really continue on a path towards prosperity if everyone isn't able to engage in the community in politics and in the economy?
0: Exactly. Uh, For those of us down here in Windham County, I'll just remind us that um, if you watch some of the early, um, early as in last year's uh, discussions between the school board and Curtis Reed of the Vermont Partnership for Fairness and Diversity, and they're talking Mm -hmm. about um, the school system is doing a lot about uh, recruitment and how do you recruit new teachers um, and make sure that you are pulling from as diverse a pool of, of candidates as possible. Um, and up, and the school uh, needs to update a lot of its recruitment practices to make that possible. And, and Curtis talks about that at a, at a few meetings. But one thing he does is he echoes what Emily just said about, um, and John just said about economic survival, that if Vermont wants to prosper going forward, it needs to... Attract more people of color,
2: and what's interesting is, so UVM has actually done a fairly good job at recruiting people of color to work there. They've done a terrible job at retaining people yes, of color. That's the other side of the coin. Sort of similarly, you know, when women run for office, women win at the same rates, um, but they don't stay at the same rates, and they don't um, enter the race at the same rate, and so. We can do all of this work in sort of individual bubbles around recruiting um, or you know, diversifying our marketing materials and making sure we have stock photos of people of color floating around in there. But until we're actually sort of shifting culture, people of color are still going to be stared at at gas stations and feel unwelcome everywhere they go.
0: Right.
1: And pulled over by police at higher rates. Yeah.
0: So is there anything um, in the legislative session this year that we'll be focusing on on these issues, Emily? Um,
2: yeah, there are a few things. Before I answer that question, I'd love to just sort of loop back to the lieutenant governor's race for just a second. Sure. Because I think it's really important to name explicitly um, something that John said about um, how people, be, you know, go into the lieutenant governor's seats in order to move to higher office. The lieutenant governor's position is has absolutely no power at all. Um, they don't really do anything. Um, it's fascinating. So they preside over the Senate chamber, but they don't actually get to make any decisions in the Senate or move any legislation in the Senate. Um, they can be part of the governor's cabinet if the governor wants them to be, but anyone can be part of the governor's cabinet if the governor wants them to be. And so it really is an incredible opportunity for someone who wants sort of a statewide megaphone um, and some space and legitimacy in the halls of power, but it is not actually a place of power. Mm -hmm. And so people making the decision to go there, um, it's a very interesting decision to make, I think, in terms of political strategy.
1: Yeah. Generally speaking, it's, it's a stepping stone to higher office, which David Zuckerman is not trying to do. And that's why, you know, I, Personally, I would love to see a female lieutenant governor, whatever else happens next year, because that would put uh, at least one woman on that launch pad. We have this we have this sort of soft glass ceiling in Vermont politics right now where there are lots of women in the House in positions of authority, uh, less so in the Senate. And then the higher you go, the the harder it is. Uh, it's, you know, um We've never had a woman in Congress. We've rarely had a woman governor, or I think we've had three female lieutenant governors. Uh, and um, we need to have women who get past these sort of like legislative leadership level mm-hmm. up to the next level, and then 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 women poised to run for uh, Congress and governor. Uh, so I, I think. I think, you know, following the Lieutenant Governor's race in the the Democratic primary could be very interesting because it's going to be either, it's going to be Tim Tim Ash and at least two women, probably three,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, which would would be its own kind of first uh, Mm -hmm. to see see mostly women on a ballot line. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Seems like a good opportunity for some ranked choice voting to be tested out, but I don't think we're going to be doing that. uh,
1: No, probably not. Um, But. Uh, not, that, not that quickly. It would, t- it would take uh, a lot of effort and the constitutional amendment, and that would take at least three years. And uh, nobody in this building seems to like ranked choice voting,
0: no. except oh, Emily. Interesting.
2: <laughs> and there's like four other people. Yeah, there,
1: there's some other people.
2: Yeah, the but... independents are actually really into it. Yeah. Um, one thing that a colleague pointed out to me, um, who's one of, there are three women under 25 in the House. And um, they have formed a very interesting friendship with each other across, I think, a lot of political difference. Um, And one of them asked me, do you know who the next youngest woman in the house is? And I sort of looked through the list and realized that I'm very close in that category. I am the sixth youngest woman in the house. um, And that there are really no very few women in, well, there are no women at all in their 30s, and there are no women in their late 20s, and there's just a sprinkling of women in their 40s. And that's not true. There are quite a few men in their 30s um, and in their 40s. And so I think that's true when we look sort of historically about when women run for office and when women are able to stay in office. And so advancing to sort of a higher position in state government and politics becomes harder if you're not, if you're entering your political career much later. Yeah,
1: we have actually a lot of the women who have reached uh, uh, senior positions in the legislature are um, at the back end of their careers. They are, they are not going to run for higher office. Uh, So, you know, one consequence of the, whatever wave of retirements we get in the next two cycles is that some of these senior women are going to cycle out and there's going to be a need to replenish the ranks. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, the the gender battle
0: never ends. I think. <laughs> 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 yes. Uh, right before we go to break, I will say that uh, for the Commons, I'm working on an article uh, going through the Change the Stories uh, recent uh, report on pay equity or the lack thereof in Vermont. Um, so stay tuned for that. I I had to read it and then experience a lot of rage before I was able to go forward and and work on the article. Um, It's it's an
2: incredible report and I do, I have one bill that's like very based in the recommendations from that. And then there's a few other pieces that we're gonna work into a committee bill um, this session.
1: That's, that's probably something that, that also hampers women's political careers is the necessity to work through that rage <laughs> before, before you actually sit down and ac- try to accomplish something, especially if you're working with a bunch of men mm-hmm. on legislation uh, who may or may not treat uh, treat your your concerns uh, with, uh, with the proper level of, uh, of respect.
0: Mm-hmm. Good point, John. No, actually,
2: that's a really good point. Yesterday in committee, um, when someone said something that was clearly, you know, the next step was for someone to ask about gender parity. Um, a witness said something that led to sort of clearly the next step was a question about gender parity. My, one of my colleagues kicked me under the table knowing that I was going to be the person who asked the question. And it occurs to me just now, it didn't occur to me until this moment, John, that if he could see that opening, he could have been the person who asked the question.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Why not? okay take take note of all that listeners the next time you're in a meeting um remember you could be the one to speak up hey we have to go to break if you are just tuning in this is the montpelier happy hour with your host my me olga peters and my guest representative emily kornheiser and columnist john walters we're going to go to a quick break and hear from some of our underwriters and then return in a moment so stay tuned Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We should remind folks, Emily, that uh, all the opinions expressed on this show are those of me, you, and John and not the radio station. Is that a good reminder? And John's opinions
2: John's opinions are not mine. <laughs> and oh. my opinions are not his. Also <laughs> true, right? <laughs> Just in case
1: anyone was confused. We we speak for ourselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome back to the Happy Hour. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am talking to Emily Kornheiser and John Walters, who are both up in Montpelier this morning. Uh, Thank you for joining me. And Emily, I want to pivot quickly to uh, what's happening with paid family leave uh, insurance or the, the program that's been on deck for a while. So
2: I like to call it, or I used to like to call it universal family medical leave, but I'm not sure that's quite the appropriate term for it anymore. So hmm. um, where to start? Let's see. So we ended last year um, at a stalemate. A version had passed in the House and a version had passed in the Senate, but we were not able to find a compromise between those two versions that both parties could accept. And that happened through sort of tossing amendments back and forth across the building. And at some point, that stops working. And um, the session ended quite abruptly, really just with five minutes' warning, um, when it was decided by the powers that be that a decision could not be made. And so over the summer, I have to assume that many conversations took place to try to move us towards a compromise. And then here we are back. And I think on about the second day of the session, correct me if I'm wrong, a conference committee was appointed or a committee of conference. I think it's actually the official term for it.
1: Yes. Three members of the House, three members of the Senate to hash out differences between the two chambers on a, on a piece of legislation.
0: Mm. Thank you for that, John.
1: And, <laughs> and uh, well, a lot of work had been done last year to get close to an agreement. Uh, basically, in broad strokes, the House was interested in a more robust family leave program. The Senate wanted something more modest that didn't cost as much. Um, they got close to an agreement, didn't make it across the finish line. Uh, leadership agreed to basically restart this year at the point where they'd left off. Instead of reopening the whole thing, they would take what they had almost agreed to and use that as the foundation for a bill. And uh, this week, the uh, the conference committee has met uh, a little bit of turbulence, but they do seem to be working toward a, a paid family leave bill. And uh, the question among some, particularly on the left in the legislature, is: Is it strong enough? Uh, it has been it has been watered down. Uh, uh, and Emily can speak to the details better than I can, uh, but uh, it has been watered down, and basically, you know the the, the dilemma, as is often the case in the legislature, is, you know, do we accept a compromise or, we, or do we go for something better?
2: And so one of the interesting things about a committee of conference is that when a bill is voted out of a committee of conference, which this was on Thursday, what day think, is it
0: today? Thursday. Wednesday
2: night, well, it was Wednesday night, late right. night, okay. um, it was voted out of the committee of conference. When that happens and it comes to the floor, it can only be voted up or down. It can't be amended. Oh, interesting. And so it's an interesting, um, it's a little bit of inside baseball, but it's an interesting move to avoid too much drama on the floor, because often a very controversial bill will have an endless parade of amendments in both directions to both sort of strengthen and weaken it or tweak it. And so this provides no opening for folks who might try to use that tactic.
1: And that might include people on the right who don't want family leave at all. And it might include people on the left
2: who want a
1: more robust program.
2: So getting into the details a little bit, um, last year, the versions that were floating around back and forth, um, the bill that basically came to the committee of conference as we started up the year had... Um, leave for folks it's called bonding it's like a bonding leave provision meaning bonding with another human not bonding like a you know for bail or um, banking and so it's essentially the family part of this um, you could call it paternity leave paternity leave whatever you want but bonding leave is sort of the non-gendered term for it
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the original bill that the committee of conference picked up had 12 weeks um, Per person
1: that needs to bond, but experts will tell you is the appropriate amount. That's kind of the minimum amount if you want a really good bond to be formed.
2: And that's often referred to as the fourth trimester. If it's um, someone who is recently born that's being cared for, um, that that sort of three months is called the fourth trimester, and it's sort of essential to both quality attachment um, for sort of social emotional growth and for um, both the baby and um, the parents' sort of body to come back into some sort of alignment with um, an ability to function in a normal universe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that fourth trimester is absolutely sort of the essential for maternal child health quality. Um, And then, but the for whatever reason, it was important to the Senate that if two parents were taking this leave, the combined leave should not be um, 12 weeks and 12 weeks. It should be, I think it was 16 or 18 weeks. Hmm. Um, And so if it was a single parent taking the leave, they would get the full 12 weeks, but two parents together would not get the 24 weeks. And what's really interesting about that, there's two interesting things about that. One, um, if we look at, outside of the US, which is the best place to look for sort of any evidence-based research on um, family leave, since this is a fairly new concept in America, it is a, having different leave policies for couples than singles is really the best way to further the gender pay gap. Mm. Um, because <laughs> one of the real contributors to the gender pay gap is Um, women taking more leave than men essentially to care for children.
1: And if you have 16 total to split among your typical cis couple, then uh, probably in most cases or all cases, the woman is going to take 12 and the the man is going to get whatever's left over. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that, uh, that might, you know, that helps the mother child bond. It doesn't help the father child bond. And it, uh, if anything, will handicap a woman's career. Mm-hmm.
0: Right.
2: Um, and I would say even in, non, in non-cis in couples, it still creates, um, it doesn't necessarily have the same long-term pay equity problem, but it will create a sort of bias in caretaking for often the length of the entire child's life. Um, those first months is really when couples build a pattern for caretaking. Good point. And so... Yeah. So in the conference committee, that actually got fixed, which is very, very satisfying to me. Um, and that was something that the Commission on Women, which I'm still serving on, was was very important to them that that get fixed. Um, and interestingly, it didn't actually cost anything to fix it. Um, and I'm not sure why. Hmm. Um, but all of the projections that were done on the issue um, was that sort of fixing the issue would cost the larger program nothing, or just be sort of a statistical, um, small enough that it was not statistically significant in the projections. So that's exciting. So that was fixed in conference committee. Um, and then other pieces of this are um, a temporary disability insurance. Um, and that's kind of the
1: sticking point with uh, progressive capital and small p mm-hmm. lawmakers at this
2: point. One of, one of two other one sticking of two, points, great. yeah. Um, do you want to tell about that a little bit? Um,
1: Well, basically, uh, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, Emily. uh, The House wants would prefer to have the disability insurance portion of this be a statewide mandated plan. Uh, The Senate, uh, in order to in an effort to keep costs down, I guess uh, wants wants the disability portion of it only to be a voluntary thing, where you would have to sign up for it and pay a little extra. Uh, in order to be covered for disability leave, uh, and um, that creates questions about whether the disability portion of the program would actually be uh, uh, financially possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does create, you know, issues where you know if if someone needs a disability leave, uh, they ought to be able to get it. You know, and and I think that's especially true in a lot of uh, low-paying jobs, a lot of blue-collar jobs, where the physical stresses are greater um and you know uh, i i talked to you know sort of like professional working men and women who's you know have physical problems uh, Mm -hmm. because they have been working with their bodies for for decades Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is an important thing to have available to people um and you know the concern is will the disability portion of this work without it being a statewide mandate which is kind of the, the argument for the whole paid leave program is it needs to be a statewide program for everyone because that's the way the finances uh, work out
2: that's the way you essentially sort of balance the risk pool is the one of the ways that's talked about and so the there's the family leave portion of it that's about caring for someone else in your family whether that is a parent or a child or a, any kind of loved one an adopted child an adopted child yeah. um, Sick, you know, a sick parent, as sort of um, someone who's entering my sandwich generation time. I'm very aware of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then the temporary disability section is about caring for yourself, essentially. And so that is not a universal program right now, um, as it's sort of exiting its conference committee. There, what sort of the conversation amongst most Democrats is, is that you know this is the good enough that we can get, and we can then layer it once sort of the um, hypothesis is tested that this is good for Vermonters and we see that it is good for Vermonters, then we can expand the temporary disability um, to be a universal program. um, I sort of always go back and forth on this issue and I'm still feeling very stuck. Hmm. So when we halfway something, Sometimes it's a halfway step towards the next step we're going to take and we'll be able to take those next steps. Sometimes, um, and this is something Olga, you and I have talked about quite a bit, when we develop a program, which is essentially a hypothesis about a theory of change to get super geeky about it, we often um, underfund that program um, because we underfund everything in Vermont. And when we, underfund that program, we never actually get to test the hypothesis. And then we say that the program didn't work and we shouldn't do it. And But that doesn't mean that the hypothesis about our theory about what would work is wrong. It just means that we never actually tested it appropriately. And so I'm scared that the temporary disability insurance, um, being a non-universal program that is both not sort of balancing the risk pool appropriately, And that a lot of people who need it won't actually access because, I mean, I don't pay into my retirement fund at all at work because I don't want another, you know, dollar being taken out of my paycheck. And I am not the only person that's making decisions like that. Mm So I'm worried that um, we'll never actually know if it will work or not. And so we won't ever be able to sort of test out what the next step of universal coverage will look like.
1: And your dilemma is going to be when this bill reaches the floor, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. it can't be amended. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to decide whether a, a halfway program is halfway to good, or if a halfway program is maybe destined to fail, mm-hmm. and you'd be better off voting no and trying again next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is going to be a tough choice for for a lot of you know liberal and progressive lawmakers. Um, You know, the Democratic leadership is trying really hard to say, look, stay with us on this. This is an important bill. It's important that we hang together. If the governor vetoes it, we're going to need you for a veto override vote. Mm -hmm. But... You know, a lot of lawmakers like Emily are are honestly conflicted um, on the merits of the bill. This isn't a political calculation. It's what is really the best thing for Vermonters.
2: Mm -hmm. And what I know is that this is the best thing for Vermonters tomorrow, that there will be people whose lives will be made better from this bill. I mean, not tomorrow, but say like a year from now, um, because things take a little while to implement. And... So it's really thinking about sort of what is the calculus about what's best for people in the immediate term versus what might be best for people long term. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. And it's really sort of essential to the policymaking process. The other piece um, that I'm really concerned about philosophically, and I think a lot of other small P progressives and um, official progressives are concerned about is that it's a privately administered program, not a publicly administered program. Hmm. And certain guardrails were added to it, um, or bumpers, everyone's using their own special ridiculous metaphor for it, uh, to make sure that it's being, um, it's sort of a regulated, privately administered program, but it's still a privately administered program, um, which, you know, could be placed somewhere that um, could be contracted with someone who has a profit motive in mind, um, or someone who is managing it in a way that's not sure the state manage it. we talked, you know, when we talked to Drew Restley, um at the Agency of Human Services, we went really deep this fall about what government accountability looks like when we're contracting services versus when we're delivering them ourselves and the challenges inherent in that. And so that's another concern I have that I don't think um, there's really any opportunity for movement for in this building right now. So Emily, yeah. and-
1: the argument, the argument, I guess, is that uh, is that a private uh, operator can be more efficient than a government uh, program, um, but that is sometimes not the case. Uh, often. often, it's not the case because they're siphoning off administrative costs and and profit, uh, and whatever efficiencies they might have over a government run program. Uh, are are wasted away in, in the private sector uh, profit motive and, and the administrative costs. Uh, and uh, so it, it doesn't really work. Uh, it doesn't work as well as just having it be part of the government.
2: The other um, case for having this be privately administered is that it also takes the risk off of state government, the financial risk. Um, and especially in a situation where we're already talking about sort of the risk pool not being broad enough because it's a voluntary program, um, there's a lot of people in state government who are much more comfortable with that risk sort of stating, staying outside of the state coffers.
0: Um, Emily, I just want a little clarification on that. So I, I thought that the, um, let's for lack of a better term, the, the family portion of this bill was going to be um mandatory and the the part that dealt with disability insurance was voluntary but you just made it sound like the whole thing would be voluntary
2: oh no no i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that so the part that is about family is universal okay and the part that is about caring for the one caring for oneself with the temporary disability piece that is voluntary
0: but, okay, but,
1: but both would be
2: privately administered.
0: The whole thing would be privately administered. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for there's, that clarification.
1: There's also not, not to inject politics into a political debate, but <laughs> uh, there is also a political argument, um, which you know those of us who are more cynical and less principled might might point to, which is: is it better to fashion a bill? And this was the legislators' approach last year in a number of uh, issues is it better to fashion a bill that you might be able to get the governor to sign? Or is it better to put out the best bill you can you can create. And if the governor vetoes it, then you campaign against him and you say, look, if we had a different governor, we'd be able to do a really strong family leave program. That's the political argument is, you know, do you try to compromise and it it seems like in either case, the governor's probably going to veto it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's an argument to be made uh, just, to, just to draw a bright line between the Democrats and the governor by passing the kinds of bills that you would like to see, even if you're sure the governor's going to veto them, and you probably can't override the vetoes. Uh, but, you know, that's talking politics and not like principle and actually doing things for
2: Vermonters. Well, I would say again, <laughs> they guess into the short term versus long term, so right. drawing a bright line with the governor... Um, and really differentiating sort of where our values as Democrats are um, and progressive towards the idea that we would get then have a greater chance of getting a new governor who would be more aligned might be best for Vermonters in the long term. Right. But passing something today might be best for Vermonters in the short term. And so if we're being idealistic about politics, which is hard to do some days, but it's <laughs> early in the session, and so I'm going to give it a try. Um, I think that's sort of that same calculus that we're wrestling with.
1: And that's the kind of thing that you would think. And we were talking in the first half of the show about, you know, the the wave of political announcements and people running for other offices uh, and how that would affect the legislature. Uh, you would think that these political considerations would overwhelm the policy considerations, but by and large, they really don't. They don't think so. Uh, people, people do act on what they think is in the best interest of Vermonters, and you would have a very different interpretation of that, Emily, than a Republican from you know the kingdom might. Mm-hmm. But, uh, or even
2: a Democrat from the kingdom, well, right, to be perfectly honest.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but people do, by and large... Um, you know, act in the, in- out of what they honestly feel is the best interest of Vermonters.
2: And so what really interests me about this, off for mm-hmm. how this is going to shake out for Wyndham County, yes, to use our tagline casually, <laughs> um, is how whatever decision I make on this vote will play out with advocates and how that's communicated to my constituents and to sort of the broader Brattleboro community. And so, you know, often in Brattleboro, we're balancing the far left and the middle left. And then there's sort of the third group of people, which is actually the majority of my constituents, but the minority of the people I hear from, which is our people who's just like lives will benefit from a family medical leave insurance. And um, the nuance of that decision-making is totally Uninteresting to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm to really help folks who are sort of strong advocates in the community understand what sort of good intentions on my part looks like, um, which I think might be painted as sort of kowtowing to like big, dim, you know, interests and in sort of a, you know, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders right. um, differentiation of the left.
1: And, and the legislature has often seen, been seen as sort of a, a, a complicit in keeping the status quo mm-hmm. from the far-left point of view um, because the business of this building is pretty much compromised. Uh, yeah. it's, it's crafting things that are acceptable to a, a broad swath of people. And uh, so purities in short supply around here. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, um, when it comes to an issue like family leave, those who are insisting on a pure version, a strong version of the bill, uh, are kind of looked at uh, by, by those in leadership as kind of annoyances at this point. Or naive. Uh, or na- yes, naive is a good way to put it, uh, that uh, they don't understand the realities of things. Meanwhile, their constituents back home are saying, get in there and fight, you know, yeah. keep fighting for, for the best possible thing. And uh, so this, you know, the process is this building, you know, uh, like, like, uh, was it Will Rogers said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Yes. Uh, that's how you feel around here a lot of the time.
2: And I would say there's a lot of different ways to fight. Um, and so even though AOC is like absolutely my hero and dream and I watch a little Instagram video about her every night for inspiration, Um <laughs> And really wish I looked that good in red lipstick. I, um, The style of um, grandstanding that makes sense in Washington really doesn't make any sense here. Right. Um, it's not an effective way of getting things done. And so that's sort of disappointing to um, the spirit inside of me that's sort of like the stand-up and grandstand fighter mm-hmm. and um, really brings out sort of the slow, meticulous, Spice um, in me which is less um, sexy and I think a lot less easy to communicate yes. the constituents because righteousness is really what sells right now in America yep. and,
1: and it's important to say that, that you know those who believe strongly in an issue whether it's family leave or minimum wage or, or uh, gun regulation or um, climate change um, it's important for them to continue their activism. Mm -hmm. Uh, we are seeing, I think, uh, the activist, we have seen in the past, the activist community play a significant role on the gun issue, Mm -hmm. finally pushing that over the finish line. I think we are beginning to see that in this building on the climate issue Mm -hmm. where the youth lobby is coming here every Friday. Uh, and there, there has been one protest already on climate and the, and the concerns from outside the building uh, they are heard
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, even by people who don't agree with you
2: and they really um, improve the atmosphere for folks for legislators who are passionate about those issues to not be the only to not be speaking in isolation it really builds a container um, for me and sort of folks like me who are really passionate about those same issues to be able to talk about them and have more of a shared language so yeah, keep up cool. keep up the fight. <laughs>
0: Well, on that note, we are just about out of time, um, Emily and John. Uh, Before we go to our quintessential cocktail of the week, I just want to check in with both of you. Is there anything for next week that will be on your radars that you're just kind of keeping an eye on?
1: Well, uh, both the paid family leave and minimum wage are on the fast track, and each will probably be on the floor uh, in their respective uh, branches. Uh, so those will be up for votes, uh, next week, probably. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Wow. It's, you know, I have to admit paid family leave and, um, minimum wage, John and I have joked about this in the past, I think around act 46 that they go on so long. You're like, wait a minute. Didn't we vote on that already? Didn't we, (laughs) isn't that done? Um, so to hear Mm -hmm. that it will finally come to a vote, um, and it may be the final vote, maybe, maybe not, uh, is kind of exciting.
2: The other thing that's gonna happen next week, I think, and I could be wrong, but because our deadline for turning in all of our bills was um, this, the middle of this week, I believe that by the end of next week, all of the bills will be released to committees. And so we'll have a sense of sort of what the landscape of some of the smaller details of the session will look like.
0: Ah, okay. Thank you, Emily. That yeah. is good to know. So, Emily, do you have a cocktail uh, for us this week?
2: I said I wanted to talk about cocktails, and I actually don't have one prepared. I went to the new Bar Hell Gin it has this new um, distillery right in Montpelier that's connected um, to this really, like, lovely, large bar space. And um, they're mixing up these very high-end cocktails and they're making their own tonic and their own mixers. And oh, wow. the bartender was shaking cocktails seemed to have like a whole dance routine. Them, went with it and I've bartended a lot. I've never shaken a cocktail like that in my life. Um, and so that I went there last night and it was very fun. And I have no idea what the ingredients were that were in my drink. So I'm unprepared for the happy hour, happy questions today. But... I know that John has a special spot for one of our Brattleboro breweries.
1: That's right. Uh, we uh, in our house are not uh, are not big on the mixed drinks, the cocktails. Sorry about that. Uh, we are we are mostly beer drinkers, and uh, but uh, almost exclusively microbrewers from Vermont and nearby. Uh, and uh, one of our favorites is uh, Potweet from the Hermit Thrush Brewing Company, oh, right there in Brattleboro. Uh, which uh, I often have to kind of search for. Uh, Hermit Thrush does have a presence on on the local shelves, but uh, not always a large one because they specialize in sour beers. And that's something that some people haven't grown accustomed to yet. But uh, that's that's one of our favorites is uh, Poe Tweet from Hermit
0: Thrush. Nice. Well, I actually have a cocktail. So I went out to... uh, Greenfield with a friend. uh, met her for dinner and we went to good old Taylor's on Main Street. And I had a cranberry vanilla mimosa, which completely did not match my meal. But because I was like, what the heck is that? I had to try it. Um, And I have to admit, it was pretty good. It was a little heavy on the vanilla. But if you want to kind of shake up your mimosas, then I highly recommend cranberry and vanilla.
2: That sounds like a good dessert mimosa.
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. It it was. Well, thank you so much, Olga. This has been super
2: fun. And it's really fun to be doing this from Montpelier. It
0: is. And I'm so glad John was able to join us this morning. Um, Thank you for that so much, John.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: And remind us, uh, remind folks where they can find your column and when it comes out.
1: Yep, um, my column normally is supposed to come out on Mondays. The last couple of weeks it's been Tuesday for various reasons, but early in the week uh, it comes out and that's right there on the homepage when it does come out. Uh, vtdigger.org. Uh, we also mention it on Twitter and uh, stuff like that and Facebook and. Um, I also contribute to Final Reading which is a subscription uh, email newsletter it is free all you have to do is provide an email address so you can get Final Reading which is sort of a, a a quick rundown of what's happened in the legislature on a particular day so you know this evening we'll wrap up you know various committee hearings various actions on bills maybe introductions of bills and also, little you know uh, personal details and and just sidelights on um, on things that go around go on around the state house. And I have to tell you, the final reading uh, has a lot of fans among the lobbyist community <laughs> because they appreciate going to, it's sort of one-stop shopping where you can find out very quickly in a few paragraphs uh, what happened that day in the legislature. So um, you know, not just because I write for it, but I would recommend it anyway, And besides, it's free yeah, you, you do you do have to give your email address which opens you up to like fundraising pitches from digger, but you know, you can you can respond to those or ignore them as your uh, your mind or your pocketbook
2: demands. Thank you, Johnny. And one thing one ahead thing ahead that on. I really appreciate about final reading um, and that our listeners might appreciate is my newsletter which people can scri- subscribe to at emilycornheiser.org. People often tell me that they enjoy it because they get a real sort of felt experience of being up here in Montpelier. Um, They really feel like they're with me up here. And I think final reading has some of that same tone of you really feel like you're in the building. It's not just news. It's a little more visceral than that.
0: Well, thank you. People can also
2: find me. Yeah, I know you're about to ask me the next question, so I'm just gonna jump right into it. Um, People can also find me at Emily Kornheiser on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram. You can email me at ecornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us or ecornheiser at gmail. And then I'm also in the co-op cafe for my office hours every Saturday at 11am.
0: Well, wonderful. We are out of time here at the happy hour. So I'm going to sign us off, but you can hear us uh, every Friday at two on WBEW 107.7 LP or on our Vermontitude SoundCloud page or, or Facebook page. Hey, everyone, have a wonderful week. And thank you, John. Thank you, Emily. Thank, thank you, Olga.